الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه Alright, welcome everyone to another episode and right now I'm looking outside the window and it is coming down hard. It is uh, a blizzard. It's now about, uh, I just came back from Fedra. It's really dark out still and uh, there are two types of snowstorms that you get. You get the snow where it's coming down in big chunks and it's coming down peacefully like a nice uh slowly coming down beautiful to look at and you can literally follow a snowflake coming down slowly uh but this one is something else these flakes number one they're really small and so they look like they're small and they're they're densely packed and they look like more like a swarm right and it's very windy and this wind is sort of slamming these uh, uh, little flakes, swarms of flakes with anger onto the side of the, uh, onto the street and onto the side of the house and the windows. And it doesn't look pretty out there. It looks like a wrathful, unlike your peaceful snowstorm where you could sit there with a cup of hot chocolate or tea and sit on the couch and have a book and, and just look at uh, the snow coming down and it's really peaceful. No, this is uh, like, like a blizzard. We're actually in the um, blizzard, blizzard warning. There's blizzard advisory levels up north. There's blizzard warning and there's actual blizzard. So we'll see what happens. But uh, luckily, uh, it started as I was pulling into the masjid for Fajr. Uh, and Fajr to me is such an important thing. It's probably more important than ever before is Salatul Fajr because for the simple reason that uh, I think that the most unmodern, anti-modern, uh, thorn in the throat of, uh, uh, of this iblisid world uh, order is Salatul Fajr. Uh, because it just seems counter to every single thing that, uh, you know, just think about it. You're going to get up at 5.40 and roll into the bathroom, make wudu, brush your teeth, put something on. And in, in the cold, okay, put on a jacket and get out there and drive and park and see these other people doing the same thing and pray turakas. That's it. It's not a long thing. It's just turakas and come back home, right? Um, it just seems it's, it, and, and even the, the state of it, I don't think, alhamdulillah, the, all the evil has not been able to penetrate Fajr. That's one thing. If you think about it, even truck drivers, they say that the most dangerous time for truck drivers is right around the last end of the night and the beginning of the morning. Because literally that's when the shayateen go to sleep. There's no shayateen out at that time. As soon as the sun starts to come up, it's almost like kryptonite is coming up. And all these abelis and these shayateen, they all uh, leave. And I, I worked one summer, uh, way back when I was a teenager, uh, one of the brothers in the community had a, uh, a chicken shack. He opened up a chicken shack. And where I grew up was, uh, unfortunately now famous, the Jersey Shore, this ridiculous show that uh, totally, uh, uh, I don't know, misrepresented maybe, but... Uh, there are a lot of Italians where I lived, and the beach that they chose was the beach that was um, 
You could have jogged. I could have jogged from my house or rode a bicycle. It's that close, literally just over the bridge, over the be- the harbor. And uh, there's the Atlantic Ocean right there. It's an area called Seaside Heights. And this brother from the masjid, he ended up, two, two guys, ended up buying a chicken shack, uh, basically one block off the boardwalk of Seaside Heights. So he went in the masjid and saw who, who wants to work. Uh, I signed up. And we had to make the chicken and fry it and then sell it to the people and all that stuff. And really, you, you, you got in there at 12 noon. You showed up at 12 noon and there was nothing going on. And you set up, you turn the lights on, you start putting the chicken in the batter. You start um, getting the thing going, getting the oil going, frying everything. And you get a customer or two here and there. And nothing's really going on. And the real day starts... Right, you'll get a customer to an hour and you chit chat and they sit around and uh, the real day starts at about 11 p.m. At about 11 p.m. that's where the people start getting hungry, start moving, right? And they're either going from club to club or they're showing up. Uh, and then it really gets insane between one and three. Between one and three people uh, coming out it really gets insane, and people were drunk. Uh, people were, and I remember uh, charging them like a dollar for a ketchup, uh, and they they didn't know. Uh, I don't know if I would have done that today, but uh, they would come out half drunk, and they would ask for extra ketchup, and there is nothing on the menu for extra ketchup. So whenever there's nothing on the menu and people ask for it, you could just make up the price. So I'll be like charging them a dollar for an extra ketchup and they'll begrudgingly slam a dollar on the thing. And they're half drunk anyway. And, uh, but by four o'clock, which is right when maybe three 30, all of a sudden everyone disappears. It's like a ghost town, Right. And it's almost like the sun is, is, is pushing away these or, or driving these shayateen underground again. And that's really what it is, right? It's like the sun here, it's almost like a metaphor of uh, uh, the haq and the rahmah and qul al-haq wa zahaq al-batil. When the truth comes, the batil just flees, it runs away. And, and that's how it scatters. That's how these people were. Uh, they scattered as soon as the sun came up and uh, everything was totally different. It's a completely different mood. The streets become empty as the sun is rising, and all of a sudden, it's extremely peaceful. And even if it was a place of uh, clubs and and insanity and drugs and and, and all sorts of fahsha, uh, just two hours ago, all of a sudden, right, once you turn that corner of the day, it becomes extremely peaceful. And I think that peace that people experience walking into Salat al-Fajr and then coming out of it. Um, I think that is, that's one of the thorns in the throat. Even your spiritual state, your had, the one who observes Salat al-Fajr, he nourishes himself with a nur. And anyone who experiences it, you can't deny. You can't deny uh, the truth of this anymore, right? Once you experience this uh, and realize that this is gathering this many people. And I remember in England, and you want to see the health of Islam, it was Ramadan, it was the London Central Mosque, and it was the last 10 days. And you look up, uh, the, the tarawih goes around until around midnight. 
uh, people scatter around. Some people go home. Some people walking in the streets and other places are open. Some of the Muslim shops were still open, right? That you could go hang out there. And then you look at three in the morning and the streets are packed. Three in the morning to go for Tahajjud, right? And Fajr and the Masjid's packed. And London Central Mosque and, and then you have East London Mosque and then you have a lot of big Jamia masjids in, in Manchester and Birmingham and, and, and these areas in the north. And you go for Fajr there and there are 50 people in the row, right? There are 50 people. There are 100 people in some of these places. Patterson, New Jersey is a, uh, a big one. You go for Fajr there, you might have 100 people. And I remember that some of our youth uh, or, or uh, some of my friends when we were young, they were in the ICPC community, which is the Patterson Masjid. Patterson is similar to Edgware Road in England. England is Edgware Road. It's but uh, it's a little more, Edgware Road is a little more posh. You got some fancy restaurants. You got the uh, a lot of Lebanese restaurants. Um, you go up and down and it smells of shisha and shawarma, right? Uh, if you've ever been to Edgware Road in England. Uh, but Patterson is the area a lot of Palestinians. Uh, Main Street has a, it's a, basically an Arab area. The whole area is all uh, Palestinians, now a lot of Turks. And the masjid there is, is accessible. A lot of people uh, can go even walking. Uh, so the masjid there is always packed. So some of the young guys, uh, they started to, to sort of keep themselves busy and keep themselves involved with Fajr. And uh, really what's important is get your body in the building at that hour. So whatever it takes. So they started doing like a statistics thing where they would log every day on the website how many people attended Fajr and sort of compete amongst themselves and try to uh, compete against themselves to raise the number up, right? And sometimes you had numbers, 172 people, right? 212 people, all right, for Fajr. And then they would have uh, their streaks, right? And this is a type of thing where you're talking about your deeds, but it's in a good way. Uh, they're talking about their streaks, like uh, uh, some people had, one brother had gone 76 days in a row that he didn't miss Salatul Fajr. He didn't miss Fajr for 76 days in a row. And then he his streak snapped for some reason or other, and he was devastated. But think of the state and the hal of that person, right? And how much raib, doubt, and how much shahwa and how much uh, 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 of the huzn and how sadness and all these things that afflict the heart that Iblis uh, uses to afflict the hearts of people, all right? And how much of that he uses and how much of that is dispelled solely, right? Nothing other than Fajr in the Masjid uh, depletes these things, pushes them away. And uh, it's, I think, to me, if you're a person who is, and all of us are, and who, who today isn't, drowned in the muck of modernity, right? Drowning in the muck of modernity and just trying to keep head above water. And, uh, and don't think for a second that the brothers who, uh, uh, brothers and the sisters that are working in the field of Islam 24 hours a day, don't think for a second that they're also not in the muck of it, that they're not also in the thick of it and, and scrapping against it. Right, and it's a rahmah if anyone's work is connected to a masjid because it forces you back into the masjid, they should be thankful and grateful. Uh, but you're the, the, the chief weapon, I have to say, is probably going to be Salatul Fajr in the masjid. And there is a narration in which, at the, the, the hallmark of the ummah 
at the time that Sayyidina Isa bin Maryam comes down is that they pack the masajid. That the masajid, uh, for Fajr, specifically for Fajr, that the masajid in Salatul Fajr are packed. And there's a little saying that if you want to know the health of uh, a local neighborhood, just the, the neighborhood, you go to Salatul Fajr and go there for a few days, and that will indicate to you the health of that neighborhood. If you want to go to, if you want to see the health of the city, go to Salatul Jum'ah. If you want to see the health of the region, go to Salatul Eid and just observe what's going on there. And if you want to see the health of the Ummah, go to Hajj. Okay. If you want to see uh, the health of the Ummah is reflected in Salat al uh, in in Hajj, uh, what you see around you. All right. What are the experiences like? Uh, what is the uh, the manners of the the people? All right. That will reflect to you the status of the Ummah. And when you go to and I haven't been to Hajj since 1994, and I'm planning Alhamdulillah, Bifadlillah, may Allah Azza wa make it happen. Uh, give us the tawfiq to do it through Ihya tours uh, to go to Hajj again. This year will be my second time. And my first time really as someone who had uh, uh, been more of an adult. The first time, I, it was my first year of eligibility. Uh, I went in. My, my, parent, my dad really said, let's just uh, go. You never know what's going to happen. And so that was a really life-altering, I would say. I became really much more attached to matters of deen after going to Hajj and saw so many nationalities in Islam. And it's anecdotal proof. There, there are certain things, and I, I uh, as a Muslim youth, and converts uh, have their perspective, well, Muslim youth have their perspective too. And, and, that's, and that's why I think that when you grow up as a teenager in Islam, it gives you a different perspective. When you interact with teenagers, you have a different perspective too. And a lot of the things that uh, kept a person in Islam were anecdotal. When you go to Hajj and you look and you see there's Indonesians here, there are Africans here, there are these Eastern European Russian where you don't know Macedonia, Albania, all right? And then you have the Caucasus, uh, brothers from the Caucasus. And then you have your Sudanese who are the nicest people in the world. And then you have all of these nationalities with their, and, 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 the, and don't forget the, um, don't forget the Bengalis, and some of these brothers are so dedicated that they don't leave the haram for a minute. You can tell that they must have spent their life uh, fortune saving up or, or uh, whatever they scrap. These people are the furthest people from having a fortune. But to them, this journey was cost them a fortune that they probably saved up. And you could tell some of them are older and they won't spend a minute outside the haram. Right? And they put their mat out and they sit there and they plant themselves. And you can tell. And oftentimes, uh, sometimes in the Umrah, that you don't even know if they have a hotel. Right? They're just uh, staying there 24 hours a day and it makes you feel guilty. You know, when you go out and go sleep and, 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 and relax and waste time and, and go out to eat and you feel guilty because these people are so devoted. Okay, the, the brothers from Bangladesh and Kashmir and, the, and their fuqara. And then you see some of the senior citizens. And I remember seeing a man. Uh, she, he, he was so arched over, right? And he was holding on to his wife. And he was so old. But they were walking the whole way, right? For, instead of taking the buses, they wanted to walk. And I was like, subhanAllah. Firstly, I've never seen 
uh, I had never seen when I was 14 at that time coming from Jersey, people with the health maladies, the physical maladies that they had. And I said, subhanAllah, like, I, you don't take it, uh, you don't realize the value of the dentists. I mean, the teeth of the people, the backs of the older people were so curved. I had never seen that in my life. The, the, the people's uh, hands and, and, and you see how rough their hands were and you wonder what in the world job did this person do? What was he doing with his hands that his hands are so rough and gnarled up, right? The knuckles and everything is uh, uh, bizarre. Uh, you know, coming from a Western background, and it totally changed your perspective uh, uh, on things when you when you got that experience. And I think it's really good for youth to see the what the world is like, especially Western youth who are uh, increasingly sort of isolated, insulated from these types of things. Uh, to see that, and to see all the devotion that people had, and all the unity that, that that moment brings together, if not any other moment, but at least that moment brings together. And also, the equalizing factor. When we went to Hajj, there was a CEO of a watch company from Egypt. So this was a, some kind of fancy watch company, and he was the CEO of this watch company. And this guy was the most pampered guy that you had ever met. Uh, in the beginning, he came in and he's got his beautiful uh, suits and he has his wife waiting on him and his wife was like almost like his personal assistant. The guy, if he picked up a fork to put it in his mouth, you'd say he worked hard. That's how pampered this guy was. And you saw how Hajj broke him down and rendered his wealth and his position absolutely meaningless. It was, the man was crying in uh, Muzdalifa. At Muzdalifa, the man started to lose his mind. He literally started to lose his mind. And that night, uh, he was crying. He was literally crying. And we're, Muzdalifa, we're in two days into the Hajj. Like, we haven't even started. It, he hasn't even passed 50 hours. And yet, the idea that he has to wear ihram, that he has to get sweaty, that he has to be crammed next to all these people, right? And a full 24 hours went without his routine. And another 24 hours went without his routine. And it, it, when the, this breakup of the routine, uh, it reminds you how impermanent this whole life is. And when the apocalypse comes, and, or, or let's say an apocalyptic event, even just a power outage, any Muslim who's been to Hajj, and I'm assuming now that it's a lot more posh and a lot more predictable than in the past, when I went was the last year before they really started to, to transform the Hajj and make it that you had to only go with a group and every group had to have these uh, conditions and all these things and they were checked and, and, and made official and monitored so that there, were no, uh, there was no chaos. So we went and there was still chaos and it was unpredictable. We had to wait after the Hajj, for a bus to Medina, the whole trip to from Mecca to Medina, supposed to be four hours, took us 24 hours because we had to wait. We had to wait for hours on end. When we finally got into the bus, we must have waited for eight hours sitting there on the curb. When we finally got in the bus, he needed, he took him um, another hour and a half to fill the bus. He wouldn't move. 
until the bus was packed. It wasn't worth his money. When he finally drove, we drove, we got to a rest stop somewhere halfway through. And back then, Saudi wasn't as developed. You went in and there were parts that were pure desert and you had these little chicken shacks or not even chicken shacks, little uh, stands on the side that you could get out and uh, like a rest stop. That was literally a guy and his, and, his, and his family cooking the food in the back of the rest stop. And uh, there was a little masjid across the street from that for people to pray. And lo and behold, we ate the lunch. We're waiting. Where's the guy? Where's the driver? He's taking a nap. The, the driver is overworked and he slept for another four hours. So we sat there for another four hours because he was so overworked. Uh, the driver at the time. So it was chaos. And the point is, when you experience that chaos, it's a vaccine. And therefore, when I came back, anytime anyone would whine or complain, I would be like, are you nuts? This is nothing. Right? And having taken someone who's who had lived literally like a, a type of life where all your I's were dotted and your T's were crossed and every day was just like the previous day and everything was perfectly hygienic and everything was on time and everything was, was in place and the cleaning lady comes twice a week and the house is impeccable all the time and the routine is established and, and the food is always there. The idea of having no food for an evening is was insane and the the first time we had that a couple times but the first time i really experienced that was in fez morocco and this is why traveling is, is so important you, you learn a lot but traveling nowadays is is less valuable because wherever you go there's going to be a walmart a target you're going to hear people listening to the same music uh there's nothing different there's nothing new there's predictability everywhere now their supply chain has really changed the world um, the, the, the the getting stuff from point A to point B, whatever, wherever you want, you can get it at any time. Uh, pretty much, you have to search now for places to to escape uh, the web of the world if you want to. I mean, uh, I'm not totally against the modern world, but uh, 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 that would be ridiculous. But the idea that getting a new experience is actually harder. So we were in Fez, Morocco, and in in the old city of Fez, people don't realize that there's the new Fez and there's old Fez. In old Fez, it's established by, saved by UNESCO, or preserved, I should say, by UNESCO. It was a German convert named Titus Burkhardt went to Fez and found this amazing walled city. It's a walled city. It's got an old wall and it has its little roads. A car cannot enter because the, the roads are too small. So it's like you can't have cars. It's literally an old world city. And you get in there and you, it's as if you went back in time. And, and Titus Burkhardt had the United Nations pay basically like a stipend so that the people could keep their way of life. And people still there they hand sew the garments, they make pots, they hammer away at copper and make pots. The sound of the, uh, of the pots are, uh, are there, are, the pot making is happening all the time. It's, it's just an amazing, it's just an amazing thing. So uh, when I got there, the idea of a 24-hour market, a 24-hour uh, uh, shops, it, it's not existent. It doesn't exist. So it was around 9 p.m. when we were heading back one of the first days of the trip there. Uh, and we were staying in an old school that had no one had stayed in it for like 300 years. Right? It, uh, it was infested with roaches. We spent the first day, uh, first evening there just killing roaches and filling in holes 
where the roaches were coming in out of with toothpaste. And it was like, imagine a rectangle uh, and then two stories of that, but the it's open. It, there's a courtyard and this, it opens up to the sky, right? And then you have a court, because it hardly rains, so all their buildings are open. And it, uh, uh, it let's see if this, this is the sound of Fez here. You can pull up some sound here. You hear this? So this is how Fez sounds. It's just pots and people making pots and people walking and donkeys and horses uh, passing through the road. So this is how old Fez sounds. Uh, people talking and uh, it's just like amazing. You've never seen this many people, especially coming from a suburb, right? So I, I get there and it's, uh, we're, we're filling up these holes in the building with toothpaste and we're killing roaches all day and all night. And uh, we, on the first day, it's nine o'clock, we pray Aisha, we come back and uh, we're, I'm thinking to myself, it's time to get a snack. I mean, when was the last time you didn't eat at nine o'clock, uh, like on purpose, okay? Uh, on, like intentionally. So I'm sitting there, I'm thinking I need to eat something and there's nothing there. And I almost like had a panic attack. Like I needed to drink something. I needed to drink and have a little snack. And like no cup of tea, no water, no Sprite, no snack, nothing. And literally I caught myself and I said, how pathetic are you? Like it's nine o'clock. You're going to have breakfast tomorrow at 6.37, right? And you just ate dinner and you're having, you want to have a snack and you're literally having a panic attack. And I'm thinking to myself, how pathetic, right, is this? And I thought to myself right there, you need to toughen up, right? You need to get used to some roughness. And that's what Hajj does to people. And, and I'm going to see, who knows, because the la latest I heard is that Hajj is almost like a luxury experience. So I think they've sort of taken that uh, out of Hajj. I don't think that exists anymore. Uh, in Hajj anymore because the last I heard is that they were going to uh, in Mina right at the end or sometimes even in Arafah ha having cakes that say happy Hajj and and sometimes the dinners are so elaborate that they're in Mina right which is this tented city where I went and I passed out for like the 48 hours straight I was like knocked out uh, like like the sun had gotten to me and you woke up and we were uh, in Mina, we were with a group of Moroccans and they would bring like some camel, uh, the Saudis would bring some camel and uh, on a bed of rice and you would sit around and it was the first time that I had seen people eat with their hands. I had never seen that before, All right? People eat with their hands. I'm telling you, I grew like all of us in the West, an extremely sterile upbringing that didn't have many Muslims around it either. Like, like three, four Muslim families uh, uh, and, and a handful. And all of us were similar to one another. It's not, uh, we were all Egyptian and the Egyptians are sort of a um, mellow type of people that adapt. So uh, if you put an Egypt in China, Egyptian in China, give him a few years, he will adapt and he will be eating with chopsticks. He won't keep the old traditions because I know that some of the Desi, uh, Desi brothers and Desi families and Afghan families and other families, Bengali, they keep their traditions. Well, the Egyptian people, they tend to adapt sometimes uh, more will too willingly 
uh, but I never saw that stuff before. And these people eating with their hands, and I remember sitting next to an old man, he was smiling at me, he's got half his teeth missing, he's grabbing, he's eating with his hands, I'm looking at him like he's got two heads. He grabs a piece of meat with his hand, rips it apart and throws it in front of me and he gives it to me like he's doing you know doing me a favor he's being nice and i'm like oh my gosh i'm gonna eat that right out of his hand right he just touched it with his hand and i'm gonna eat it and i thought to myself this is amazing because you have two reactions when you see something totally different it was almost like the buddha siddhartha gotama his biography is amazing he was in such a sterile upbringing he went and he saw poor people and he was like wow that's amazing Right, And he was amazed by it, and he wanted himself to become more adaptable to it. And that's the position I took. I took the position of, this is actually all the modern world that we live in. One day could come crashing down. So if our bodies, and if our minds and emotions are not sturdy enough, we're going to have a crisis. And I'm all about this saying of Sayyidina Umar, be rough around the edges, be tough, be sturdy, be uh, uh, someone who's adaptable because blessings never last. And the blessing of, uh, the blessing of modernity, uh, is it going to last? I mean, I'm sure at some point, because I believe my position is that uh, the people of the world today are not uh, stable enough. The people, we're producing youth and children and, and, and even adults, I don't see that they're mentally stable enough, the world, to, to keep up this complicated world that we live in, that is extremely sensitive, right? I feel that there's so much instability, there's so much unpredictability, and there's nothing, there is no great narrative that's keeping people in check, right? That's keeping people from uh, uh, when when there's a shortage of supplies to, to keep their humanity, right? And that's just my and of course and, and and in my in my family, my wife always takes the opposite. She says you always look at the negative, right? And I'm thinking to myself, I have to look at the negative because if things are positive, then good, then there's no problem, right? If you look at the positive and then the negative happens, you're shocked, right? You're surprised. I like to be well prepared and I want to be prepared for uh, uh, every possible thing that could happen so that whatever happens, you know, it, it'll probably be less than what you imagine, right? And uh, it'll probably be less than, than you imagine and, and you'll be okay, right? So uh, uh, I, always, I, uh, I always watch and read about uh, post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic types of scenes and I imagine myself, all right, what, what are we gonna do? And I'm telling you, there are some really little things that we, we haven't even thought about, right? I mean, uh, some, uh, can you imagine, can you imagine being in a situation where you don't have ready medical attention, even just in, your, in the back of your mind, just in the back of your mind, the idea that there's a pharmacy right there, there's a hospital, there are 30 doctors on, on uh, just on your phone, if you're a Muslim, Right. If you know any Pakistani people, guaranteed you're going to have like 15 percent of them are doctors. So you feel you don't even think about it. But one of the things that you don't think about is what's going to happen when you are cut off from medical attention. And uh, there was a sister in Australia 
that invited me to her organization a couple times. Uh, a, a Lebanese Muslim Association, uh, really great people. I love, uh, I, I can't wait to go back. Uh, but these guys, one of, one of them went to Mauritania. And in Mauritania, when I was always asking about it, because I've never been to Mauritania, I always wanted to go. My, my dad never let me go. He thought I would go and die. Uh, so he never let me go. Uh, he keep telling me you're going to get malaria. Uh, but he never let me go. So I'd never been to Mauritania. So I was asking, like, tell me more. I always ask people who go to Mauritania, tell me what it's like. And one of the things that she mentioned was the this, this simple idea that you cannot get medical attention. That if something happens to you, okay, that the nearest doctor is, number one, he's probably not even competent. Number two, it's a three-day journey, Right? Or that's on a good day, okay? Three days. You think to yourself, just the thought of it would give you a panic attack. And if you're someone like me, headache prone or something, okay? Like the, the, the dependency that we've developed on Excedrin and, and, and medicine, to me, you take that away, it's something that's not, never been experienced before. Like how do you treat a headache now? You pop a pill and it's gone in two hours, right? You drink water. You just drink a lot of water. You pop a pill, you put an ice pack on your head and it's gone in two hours. We've conquered the headache, right? Well, to exist in a world where you know that this headache is going to persist for another 12 hours and you can't do anything about it. And this is why human beings were humble. I'm telling you, human beings were humble because the, the world humbled them, right? They didn't conquer stuff. We conquer everything today. It's amazing. And you take electricity away from us for, 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 for two weeks, we're going to go insane. Okay. You take, take us out of our element. We are so soft. And that's why I always think, and, 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 and my wife brings the point that it's more important to be mentally prepared and emotionally ready than you'll never really be physically ready, right? You're never going to be. And, and some of us, we have dependency on the types of pillows that we sleep on. How many people out there have a dependency on a type of pillow? I can tell you right now, uh, these pillows in the hotels, every time I've stayed in a hotel, I mean, they, they need to spend some more money on the pillows. They basically take a bunch of nothing, a bunch of air and stuff it into a case. And there is no pillow. I get headaches every time I sleep in a hotel uh, I'm, uh, uh, to the point that I have to take my own pillows with me. And it's pathetic. I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I'm like one of those old ladies who has to pack their own pillows with them, right? So fragile, our necks and heads are so fragile, right? That we have to pack our own pillows. And this is the fragility that we're talking about. We are not robust, we're not adaptable. We become so fragile. But what we can do is the mental element. And for this reason, I uh, always look into this, uh, to these apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic scenes and I try to get them uh, in my head uh, and mentally ready because I really do believe, I don't think that uh, uh, the world or, uh, as it is is just going to go on hunky-dory, everything's fine. No, I don't think so. I think that there's actually going to be... Uh, uh, stuff has to happen. It's going to be user error. It's going to be uh, some crises. It's... Like uh, we're in post-sanity, post in the post-sanity world, so we got to be ready for that. And we're going to take a, a little break. When we come back, uh, I want to share with you here uh, a novel 
which has now been made into a movie that I think everyone's probably heard of already. Uh, I'm interested in seeing it. And to me, all I really care about is the scenes of the post-apocalyptic world. I don't know what this story is about, but we'll see uh, as soon as we get back. You're listening to the Safina Society podcast. Follow us online at safinasociety.org. All right, we're back. Uh, listen to this. You're also in Ready Player One. Yeah, Steven Spielberg. What is that about? It is based on a book that you should read. You'll read it in an hour. My wife read it in four hours, and it took me three days. But it's the quickest read. It's about the future in the 2040s when the world is completely overpopulated, and we've kind of gone to the Armageddon that we may possibly be heading to right now in this very moment. There is a virtual reality world called the Oasis. And most human beings spend their time in the Oasis because you can have a job there. They use sort of a Bitcoin system. So most humans are in this virtual reality game. It's a comedy. <laughs> it's hysterical. But it is... No, it is, it is funny. And I, I am the comedy in it, obviously. I play, this, play? I play this bounty hunter in the game who seeks out people and kills them or, or, or captures them, much like Boba Fett from Star Wars. But I'm sort of a more... A mildly amusing, a funny Boba Fett. Did you enjoy seeing it finished? And I haven't seen it finished. It won't come out until 2018 because they've developed new technology. The film will look like you're in a video game for most of the movie. And it will be 3D, but also on the 2D level it will be completely different. But that's when Steven Spielberg is this childlike, wonderful genius who wants to make up new ways to tell stories. That's all he wants to do. And he'll start off the day sometimes going, All right! We're, we're making movies, we're reliving our childhood, let's do it! And, and the entire crew always feels buoyant because Spielberg's energy is this, his directing style is he never says you've done anything wrong. He just says, a little more color to the voice. No, no, okay, let's try it louder. All right, now pace it up. He always wants things to be faster. And he waits and he waits, and then when you get it right, he goes, that one, that was great. Print that one. Let's do that. Circle that one. Make sure to circle that one. That was great. Can we do another just like that? And then we can do one for you, but we got it. You always feel like you haven't, well, I haven't done anything wrong, and I, I guess I can try anything, because everything... So it really, it's clear from the moment that you start working with him, and I've known him before this, but it's clear from the first shot... So this is it. Ready Player One is what everyone's talking about. Uh, let's take a look at what the uh, setting is. It says here, in, it's the year 2044. The world has been gripped by an energy crisis from the depletion of fossil fuels, and the consequences of global warming, causing widespread social problems and economic stagnation. To escape the decline their world is facing, people turn to the Oasis, a virtual reality simulator accessible by players using visors and haptic technology, such as gloves. So you put on a whole suit so that you could feel everything. So that, for example, in, a video, in, in this virtual world, if a person taps your shoulder, you feel it on the suit. Okay, uh, it functions both as uh, an MMORPG, I don't even know what that is, and as a virtual society, 
with its currency being the most stable in the real world. So the currency in this thing, that people value the currency in the Oasis so much uh, in the video game, uh, which is not even a game anymore, it becomes a virtual reality world, that you could actually trade those currencies, right, those pieces for other things like food or, or, or clothes or something in the real world. So its value is more stable and more desirable in the real world than the actual currency of uh, the world. Okay, so this idea is totally within the realm of possibility. It's completely within the realm of possibility. Uh, and, in the, and, and in this oasis, uh, basically, you can have relationships. It, for example, they show that, you know, if you're a guy and you, uh, uh, you know, don't have any intimacy, that, you, that when you put this suit on and if a woman was to touch you in this suit, you would feel everything and you would see it all in 3D. So people value that and they want to, uh, uh, to have the, um, they want to be, you know, something that they can't be in this world. They could be it and even feel it in uh, the next world. So basically in this uh, virtual world, basically you could do everything except eat in this virtual world. The only, only thing you can't do is virtual eating, right? So, uh... We are already existing in a world, which is the internet, that if you're not, I was thinking the other day, if you're not on this thing, if you're not on the internet, you are, do you even exist anymore in this world relative to the other people, relative to, to, to people in the world? What industry can you be in and be appreciated, right, without being online? And everyone's got to earn a living somehow, right? So uh, we're already halfway there, and the idea that they they can uh, advance this uh, uh, these the, the games that they already have uh, into a virtual world in which the the currency in in that world is as stable and desirable in the real world, right, is totally not far off. I mean, just the idea of uh, uh, of Bitcoin itself has already proved that you could have a completely virtual currency that people are going crazy over. All right, so now let's see what else uh, it goes. It, this this virtual world was created by a character named James Halliday, who, when he died, had announced in his will to the public that he had left an Easter egg inside Oasis, and the first person to find it would inherit his entire fortune and the corporation. The story follows the adventure of Wade Watts, starting about five years after the announcement, when he discovers one of the three keys pointing to the treasure. I'm not really interested in that part. I'm just interested in how people are imagining uh, these post-apocalyptic worlds. And, and this is something similar to a Hunger Games in, uh, from the aspect that in the Hunger Games, you had two polar opposites. You had the super poor and the super rich and nobody in between. Well, here you have... Uh, where the real world is completely decrepit and the stacks, uh, they, uh, what they have here is these stacks, um, the people live in stacks and I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll sort of explain it to you in a second here. People live in these stacks and this is one of the things that he uh, was most proud of because this was originally an, uh, a novel written by uh, some guy and uh, the stacks are basically that people can't build anymore there's no building anymore there's no money to build the way that people used to build so what people have is these trailer parks imagine it's trailer parks but it looks sort of like a shanty town and they're just taking any iron they can to build to establish another level right and put trailer park homes like these uh, almost like 
you know these trailer park homes what they look like it's almost like a imagine like a two three times the size of a bus or maybe one time two times the size of a bus without the wheels right and they're just stacked one on top of the other all right one on top of the other and it's a mess and they're it's almost like a, a modern uh, post-apocalyptic shanty town the uh, like these shacks that people that you see in some third world countries uh, but they're almost like these trailer homes and there's steps coming from them and they just putting them one on top of the other. So that's one of the things that the novel uh, writer, the author, uh, was sort of proud of that he imagined this. And I always look at how people are imagining the future to be because in my belief, right, in my uh, opinion, um, whatever you imagine is what's going to come, right? Allah does not bring us, uh, shock people with a new world just like that, right? He plants the image of this new world in the minds of people, right? And then they go, and when it's their, when they have the influence, they go and they do it. So Ernie Klein, I believe, is the uh, the author, and the idea of these stacks is a big deal for him. So it's you've got like these, almost like RVs. If you know what an RV is, it's basically you. It's um, a big type of van that you drag behind a truck and it's got a little kitchen in it, little uh, living room in it, little bathroom in it and they're all stacked up, like 50 of them stacked up and next to each other. So you got like uh, uh, 200 RVs supporting one another and these what this, this is what the stacks are and that's what he imagines out how people are going to live because the population is so packed, right, that uh, uh, there's basically no room anymore. And one of the, th the themes in it is uh, that there, there's no more room to live. All right, why, why don't we take a look at the trailer? My name is Wade Watts. My dad picked that name because it sounded like a superhero's alter ego, like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner. But he died when I was a kid, my mom too. And I ended up here sitting here in my tiny corner of nowhere. There's nowhere left to go. Nowhere. Except the Oasis. A whole virtual universe. People come to the Oasis for all the things they can do. But they stay because of all the things they can be. Can you feel this? Um, yeah. It's the only place that feels like I mean anything. The Oasis was the brainchild of James Halliday. Hello. If you're watching this, I'm dead. I created a hidden object, an Easter egg. The first person to find the egg will inherit half a trillion dollars and total control of the oasis itself. Who is this Parzival and how the hell is he winning? All right, so uh, that's basically uh, the story of it in a nutshell. Um, the, the hunt for the Easter egg is really not interesting to me. Uh, and then they got all this 80s music, which I don't understand. But uh, apparently the uh, maker of the, uh, uh, one of the things that Steven Spielberg is trying to do here, or maybe the novel writer, I don't know, 
whose idea was it, was to bring back the time of stability, which in America, the 80s was really stable. Uh, you had the USSR, but overall, uh, things were good and stable and, and, and sort of there was some normalcy. So he's trying to contrast the normalcy with the um, sort of uh, complete opposite of that. Right, that that is in the world, the year uh, tw in the world in the year 2044. So that's the idea behind it. And um, uh, Subhanallah, you know, I don't think that Western civilization, with its meaninglessness, uh, in other words, having no meaning to existence anymore, I don't think that they could, could carry on leading the world. They're going to lead us down an abyss. There, the people have to have meaning. And then when you when you take it when you take it to its logical conclusion. And go look at how people are living. And this is something I alluded to very earlier on in the podcast. That uh, as a Muslim teenager, just anecdotally seeing Islam being lived, right? Sometimes you can't put it into words at the time because you're, when you're still young. And I couldn't put it into words. But I could tell you this is real life and this is working. This is good for people. This is solving a lot of problems. Right, the things in Islam solves problems. It it brings people together. It make, gives you an excuse to come together. It forces you to come together, and it removes loneliness, and it brings cleanliness, and it brings meaning. Right, and and it's working. It's not just a theory. One of the things that when I went through uh, as a freshman was that I had to investigate all the world's uh, ideas out there. I had to investigate because I'm saying, why am I Muslim? I'm Muslim just because that's the only thing that I know. You can't be, be something because that's the only thing that you know. So I went and I took all the religion classes there were to take and I took all the philosophy classes that were there were to take. And I was very intimidated by the philosophers, I have to say. I was extremely intimidated by them. And I remember having to read Davidson and going into the stacks at Rutgers and his stuff was impossible to read. And I thought, this man is a genius and I have to figure out what he's saying here. And I was very intimidated. And when you go back to Hadith of the Prophet and you realize the Hadith is so simple, right? When you're young and, and you don't have experiences, you start to be intimidated. Well, why is it that this, these the Hadith and I would, my version of studying Islam was to go take the summarized Sahih Bukhari and read through it. And there should, all Islam should be in there, right? Or in the Quran. And you read verses about purification, about using the miswak, about uh, other things. And you realize when you contrast that with like a philosopher, right? There's a big contrast, right? There's, it's completely different. And you started getting intimidated and you realize, oh my gosh, is it true? Am I just following, you know, some old thing that, that doesn't really, uh, cannot even compete uh, with uh, the, uh, these works? Until I started to actually do what, what normal people would do is you want to meet these people, right? So I started going to the office hours of my philosophy professors and uh, oftentimes they were relaxed and then we would just go and, and, and talk uh, uh, at the lounge and, have, and they would have their meals and stuff. And I would sit there and what completely, totally trans shut down in my mind all of their works, everything, was just watching them looking at their lives, right? Looking at their lives. And when you look at it, it's like, firstly, the one professor I had, was complete all of them were not hygienic 
right? And it's just, I can't say all of them, but the few that I had, uh, uh, had come across, they were not hygienic. Like they were sloppy, right? They were not clean. There's not a face that you wanted to look at, right? And that was one thing. When, I, when you start to look at their world, it's extremely lonely. They were very lonely people. And then when you start to read the biographies of the, uh, of the philosophers, you realize they were lonely too. And then you ask, well, is there a gathering? Do you guys have like gatherings? Like you guys meet? Do you have, like we, we gather, we have conferences, we have Jummah, we have Hajj, right? We have uh, all these other things that go on and we come together, right? We have Iftar, you have Suhoor, we come together. Is there like a, a hub for you guys? Nothing. Is there a way to, to answer the meaning of the world or you just keep bringing me more questions, right? And one of my philosophy professors, he said to me, you know your problem? He said, you always look for answers, right? <laughs> philosophy, all it can do is bring you more questions. I was like, then what is the point, right? So having went through that, right? Uh, having went through that and, and then having uh, gone through that phase where you're actually intimidated by their writings and you actually start to believe that they, they're onto something and that Islam is too simplistic. Once you, that, that's one of the pitfalls that people fall into very early on. Right? And it really doesn't take much to realize that the simplicity of the language of the MBA, the prophets, is for a great wisdom. And a great reason is that you need buy-in from everyone. It's, this cannot be a social club for intellectual gymnastics. Right, For intellectuals to go and do their thing by themselves. Because if you do that, you end up with what philosophers end up with and as which is alone you need the buy-in for any system to work in the world everyone's gotta be involved and 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 feel invested and have something to do when i pray next to children and and in the masjid children come and and and, and i have my own children and i watch them in salah salah is something that's really deep not only is it deep, it requires education. You need to know how to recite Surah Al-Fatiha. You need to know the rakas. You need to do all these things. But guess what? Children from the age of two, three, four, and five, they have something to do in salah. It's like if it's if salah is merely reading a prayer, then for a kid he can't do it. He can't sit still. Children just can't sit still. So salah, though, when I notice. Children are highly engaged in Salah in a different way through the most basic thing, which is the movement of the body. So they're looking at how everyone's moving up and down and they're not uh, fidgety. There's no reason to fidget in Salah because you're just busy moving. And then I see them from the corner of my eye watching. Well, how is he holding his hands? And then they, they look at their own hands and they try to hold it. Well, how is he raising his hands? And how is he going down? And they think it's totally fun to go up and down. And you see adults, you know, uh, making a sajda. And, and when they're little kids, they roll around on your back. And then in the tashahud, they're busy. The kids are busy too because they're watching. How is everyone using their finger? And how am I going to move my finger? And I watched a child through the entire tahajjud totally engaged in their own way, with their own level, with the finger. And watching other people how they do their finger, right? And then she's moving her finger in imitation of the person next to her and trying to do it exactly like they're doing it. And so the point is, at every level of intellect, at every level of wealth, 
no matter where you are in the world, there is in Islam that which engages people, right? Whether you're an intellectual, whether you are a mystic, okay? And we can go on, and I tend not to do this because it just doesn't make sense to do it in a wider range, but every once in a while we have to talk about uh, the type of the, the mysticism that exists in our deen. And when I talk about that, when I mention that, what I mean is the states that you go through when you're consistent upon certain ibadat. And all of us, I highly encourage everyone to read the book Virtues of Seclusion and, uh, and to look at our philosophy of seclusion is not permanent seclusion at all. My philosophy of seclusion that I, that I put forth in the book is what many of the ulama and the awliya have talked about in today's time, that our seclusion is periods of the day. At least a short period of every day that you need to carve out and have a desire and a passion for, you're going to develop to carve this out for ibadah. And, and people don't know how to make dhikr. And it's very important to learn how to make dhikr, which is that a person should shut the door on themselves, have no technology with them, have the book of Allah, have a set of beads, sibha, and uh, maybe have some dua books. And if you, even more if you know a little Arabic, some of these qasida books, which are the words of the salihin and the sentiments of the salihin and the prayers of the awliya and their dua, their words, their sentiments are so deep it's education. It's so deep. And then if you add that to a melody, right? If you put a melody to that, uh, it's just amazing. When you put the melody to it, it moves your, it stirs your inside. Uh, it's, it, and it transforms you. And if you keep it for an hour, right? If you sit and you try to wash your car for 20 for 10 minutes. Is, is there really, are you going to do anything? No. But if you were to spend an hour washing your car, it's going to be a total different uh, car, right? It's going to be a total different view, experience on the inside of the car. If you spend an hour cleaning the inside of your car, you get in the car next time and it's totally different, right? So it, you need to go the full hour. And by the way, the real men out there, the real, okay, awliya out there, Okay, when I say man, I mean the rijal, right? Not excluding anyone. Uh, because when they say in the Quran, rijal, la tulhim they mean they're in that sense that, uh, that that rijal, spiritual rijal, it encompasses both men and women. And when you look at them, when, they, when you tell them an hour, they tell you that that's just getting started that that's just getting started, that they, when they push to three hours is good, is okay, is fine. And f the fourth hour is really, if they can hit the fourth hour, then you really hit an effect that drives home and transform you. And I'm telling you the other day, I was in the masjid and there was a program. I got there early and I had set up, we had set up for the program and uh, there was an hour left before uh, Aisha and then the program was after. I said, what am I going to do for an hour? So I picked up my book of Aurad and I sat and I just recited it into the mic and I just kept going and I kept going for a full hour. And I'm telling you, when I got up, it was like everything had a touch to it. It was almost like you had entered into the world of Narnia, right? It sounds crazy, but I'm telling you, we have, this is, this is what mysticism is. And I'm, and I'm just scratching the surface 
I am just scratching the surface because I, when you read the the stories of the other of of the real uh, of the awliya out there, the real people who worship Allah, we we, we just do kindergarten stuff, right? Uh, we're we're in kindergarten. Uh, the real awliya, when you read their experiences, it's something else. But let me just tell you, you get up, and when you start going back to your to 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 come back to the world, out of from from being in the thicket for just an hour, an hour is nothing, right? To, it, for in the modern times, it's a big deal, but you come out and literally everything is the same, okay? However, nothing is the same. Everything is the same. Like you get a cup of tea, it's a cup of tea, but there's it's almost as if there's life in that cup of tea. It's almost as if in everything that you do, there's a type of romanticism to it. You romanticize everything. It's just something. It's very hard to explain. That's why Imam al-Ghazali, he talks about it and he says it's almost like trying to describe to someone what honey is if they've never eaten honey. Okay? Uh, it's really impossible to describe. It's something that you must experience and I'm telling you, what I'm telling you is if you have a basic aqidah is sound, right? You can experience it. This is something that is a science. It is not something that you're special or someone's special. I mean, yes, we're all special in that Allah cho chose for us. Amen. But... To have this spiritual experience, which to me is one of the foundations and pillars that keeps our iman intact, because once you have felt this, once you have lived this experience, and it's not just a feeling, it's it's beyond that. It's something that you feel or you sense that everything is romanticized. It's as if the world is moving in slow motion. It's as if you can see yourself uh, from a bird's eye view going through life, that one day you're going to be able to see all this uh, 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 in retrospect. And so therefore, when you, when you imagine that one day, you know, it's, uh, this world's going to be over, or I'm going to be an old man, and I'm going to be thinking back at this moment in time, once that thought crosses your mind, it gives you a great appreciation for this moment. And you start to really be thankful and full of gratitude for this moment, right? Because you're going to be looking back at this time, and you're going to say, subhanAllah, this was some great times. And so it gives you appreciation. It gives you, also in your heart is a desire to forgive everyone. It's in a desire to love everyone. You want to just spill love onto people. This is what we're talking about. This is what, what just the scratch the surface of, of when we say the word mysticism and spirituality, that's what it is. It is that the dhikr of Allah Azza wa Jal is a nur that enters the heart and transforms how you live and experience the world. And this is what I believe all humans are craving, right? They're all craving. And when you are depriving them of this, then they must go into the, the temptations of the flesh. And that just leads you down a depression. It leads you down to darkness. Uh, that's if it's done in the haram. Even if it's in the halal, kathratul halal makru, right? It's almost like it's frowned upon to do too much of the halal. So yes, eating food is excellent. It's great. But is that all we're going to do all day? It becomes to the point of mevmum or frowned up, uh, distasteful, uh, disliked. So what I'm telling you uh, is mark yourself, take some statistics and go 14 days, 40 days in which you can, uh, in which you sit down for an hour and, and do dhikr as in the way that we've just mentioned through Quran, through Qasaid through dhikr, just tasbih with the beads, right? And then right after you top, right after you finish your 45 minutes, even 45 minutes is great, to an hour, 
pick up one of the stories of uh, uh, of the people of the past. Something soft, something that is related to spirituality in some way. Uh, in specific, the stories of the awliya, just their biographies, just their stories about them. Uh, and just top it off with some of those stories. Do this for 14 or, or, or days, 21 days, 40 days in a row. Don't miss a day, okay? And you will see what we're talking about. And this is a proof of Islam. To me, this is the greatest proof because that is a proof that cannot even be put into words, right? And, and don't think that I uh, buy into it, any of this, this stuff of feelings. No, I don't reject the, the, the importance of this. Ahwal is something I don't reject. But all in the past episodes of the podcast, when we've been talking about the goofs and the goofia, what we're talking about is the misuse of these ahwal, right? I feel this, therefore this, this or that must be correct. No, uh, we have knowledge, we have protocols, we have adab, we have interactions, and those things are the, when I talk about goofism is when someone misuses or misinterprets their spiritual states Right in a way that contradicts the norms of of life, and 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 the let alone the Sharia, right? But Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "What murbil arf?" Right? Act by arf, or or use customs in the sense that the customs of the Muslim people, if the Muslim peoples have certain customs and they pray and they're upright, righteous Sunni Muslims, their customs are to be respected. Okay, so. When, when, we, when you see people who are sort of going to an extreme, that's what we're talking about. So I don't want people to think that we're throwing the whole thing out. No, we don't at all, right? But it's got to be measured and balanced. And, and, it, and uh, what, I don't, what I hate to see is when people get into uh, this uh, uh, element or facet and then they become these oddballs and weirdos and sometimes even making people feel that they're even some arrogance develops within them and they start making people feel that they're not righteous or that they're they're not spiritual and they start judging the spirit judging the spirituality of others is the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard firstly it's unseen that's the first thing secondly do you know how fast things can change right things change all it's almost like judging someone's weight well you could lose five pounds tomorrow right so ahwal come and go and we in our uh, fight against this modern junk that is pulling us and this world that we live in that's ins uh, that's insane all right and that is so unstable well the spiritual world is very stable the heavens is completely stable and this is our little access to it by entering into this virtues of seclusion by entering into this khalwa for a small period of time every single day and i'm telling you once you get it into the groove life will never be the same you will never view life this you view anything in the same way again so you got to fight and don't think that you need to change anything else many people are afraid oh my gosh if i do this well i i i do other things well let me tell you from myself i live like a regular muslim right i do everything that everyone else has to do right but we add this to it and it transforms everything i do everything that uh, I'm a regular, uh, the other day a man was talking to me and asking me and really talking to me as if I was something different. I said, listen, he was a young guy. I said, listen, I'm, an, I'm a regular Muslim. I live like a regular Muslim. Um, I'm, I'm a husband and a dad and I have a job and I have to go to work and I have to get the mail and I do everything that everyone does. I wish I was special, like in the sense that I wish, I really always, uh, I'm jealous of Sheikh Nur Hamim Keller, to be honest with you. I, I have jealousy for that, like that type of good jealousy because he's a man who, 
he's literally living by the book. Literally. Like, I don't think that he's, uh, 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 he's not exposed to the media that we're exposed to. He's not exposed to the stuff that we're exposed to. He has done something that I think that I would have done too. Yeah, like, uh, in an ideal world, cut yourself from that uh, garbage completely, right? And Allah Azza wa Jal has given him a life that he's able to do that, right? And, and I'm glad that there are people like that on the earth. And it just gives me comfort just to know that he exists. And, and by the way, I, I'm not, I don't know Sheikh Nuh. I haven't got close to Sheikh Nuh. I have never even met Sheikh Nuh, maybe one time uh, in a suhbah in Virginia. Uh, I snuck in. I don't even know if I was allowed to go in, but I snuck in and I attended and, uh, and I saw him. I read his, some of his books. I know very little. And by the way, my attitude towards the Mashaikh is that I don't like to get too close to Mashaikh. I don't want to get too close Right when when I respect some, a sheikh, when I find a sheikh that I respect, I don't like to get too close to him. There are some sheikhs that are meant to be close to. In England, there was Sheikh uh, Babikr Sudani. The closer you got to him, the more you learned from him, and the more you appreciated him, and uh, you learn more when you were intimate with him, seeing him at the job in the masjid with his family. You learned how to live. But let's take a break here, and when we come back. Uh, we could look at the uh, Twitter feed and see what's going on here. IR Tours began with the idea that Hajj should be more than just packages. It should be more than hotels, buffet meals and luxuries. Our intent at IR Tours is to provide you with a Hajj experience that lets you focus on the spirit of the Hajj. We do that with our dual approach. First. We organize pilgrims and small groups paired with a world-renowned traditional scholar to provide an experience like none other. Second, we partner with the best businesses in the industry to make the logistics simple and the whole experience as comfortable as possible. We are confident in our novel approach. Let us serve you in your endeavor to fulfill your religious obligation. www.iyartours.com Alright, we're back. Uh... Let's go through Twitter here and uh, see if there's anything going on. Uh, Subhanallah. Uh, uh, Akbar Zab. I don't know if I pronounced that right. He just put out this tweet and sent it to me here uh, with a picture of Sheikh Nuh Keller. And he's saying, is this Sheikh Nuh? Right? There is like one picture of uh, Sheikh Nuh. And one of the things I love about him is the mystery around him, that his picture's not out there, that he seems like removed uh, from the grime and the uh, social media and all that stuff. So that there is one picture that's out there, uh, which uh, probably he doesn't appreciate, so I never really pass it on. But it's amazing that we were just talking about Sheikh Nuh, and here Akbar is sending me a tweet here saying, is this Nuh Keller? Um, so that's a picture of Sheikh Nuh. So we're getting some questions here on the Hajj tour. Uh, Ihya Tours is doing the Hajj program, which uh, or the Hajj uh, uh, journey this year with uh, myself and Sheikh Yahya Rodas. Um, a question here from Rais is saying, would South Africans be eligible uh, to apply for this? So I'm going to say, Waalaikum Salam, Rahmatullahi wa Barakatuh. And I'm just going to tell him, please send them an email. Uh, email and ask because I'm not sure 
and let's give an at to let's see if they have a Twitter handle I don't know if they have a Twitter handle no it doesn't look like they have a Twitter handle yet okay alright Okay, this is interesting. I've never seen this. Uh, there's a live feed right now, and um, it looks like this is, I don't know what, is, what this is, uh, just a speech, I guess, but it's Habib Omar is speaking right here. And he, what he just said was, uh, Allah has warned us from imitating uh, those who disbelieve in him and those who are on the opposite path of the prophets, and he's warning against imitating them, uh, it's not something that Allah does not love, all right, in the outward and the inward. And he's now saying, have taqwa in your hearing and in your seeing. So the stuff that we listen to and the stuff that we look at, he's reminding. He's talking here about what is pulling us down is this imitation of people who are on the opposite path of Allah than Allah Azza wa They're going the opposite way and we're imitating them and wondering why we've been brought down. Who made us love these things? Why do we love everything that is coming from them? When the call to the haqq, to Allah Azza wa Jal, is coming to us through prophecy. Turn to Allah Azza wa Jal, he's saying. He's talking about these majalis and gatherings. These are the gatherings that reinforce the love of the good. And now he's making dua for the people of uh, uh, wherever they're at, the masjid that they're at, and it looks like he's coming to an end. He's saying, and what you have of Iman and Islam, be thankful for it and be speedy to build it up. So as, a, as your form of shukr and, and gratitude is to, uh, to build it up, to increase it, to develop it, right? Developing our Iman and our Islam and being great, grateful for it and having shukr for it. And looks like there's, um, the feed is not fully... Uh, it looks like we lost the feed. Let's let's refresh.
All right, looks like we lost the feed. But uh, interesting, I didn't know you can go live on Twitter now. Uh, it looks like they use Periscope. Uh, I'm not familiar with that. Um, so anyway, good to know. But that was, uh, it's good so when, you're, when your feeds, the thing is with, with me is uh, I don't really put up with any, I'm not interested in knowing everything. If, if something is not beneficial or is bothersome, I just uh, remove it. I don't need to see and get bothered by my feeds. Anything that, as soon as something bothers me for a second, I just remove remove it or or just uh, don't hear don't get that feed anymore uh, from that person. So there's no need to bother yourself. Uh, everything that I get on my feeds is always something beneficial. So um, you know, so that was that, that was extremely beneficial. Habib Omar's uh, philosophy is that Allah Azza wa Jal great gave us this technology uh, so that we could use it. And that we could be able to uh, say that we used every means and method uh, to call people to Allah Azza wa Jal. All right, here's the author of the novel talking about um, his idea. Um. Uh, the idea is that uh, a video game designer uh, who's uh, kind of of my generation or of our generation, uh, born in the 70s and raised in the 70s and 80s, he uh, uh, invents a um, globally networked virtual reality called the Oasis. That's kind of like uh, Second Life and World of Warcraft and Facebook and everything that we know about the Internet kind of uh, 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 made as cool as possible and imagined, you know, like 35 years from now. So it's this sprawling virtual reality and the creator of this, this virtual reality uh, dies in the opening pages of the book and leaves his entire fortune and control of this virtual world that everybody you know uh, on the planet uses uh, to whoever can unlock these video game puzzles that he's left behind. He's created, kind of inspired by uh, Warren Robinette's Easter egg in the original Atari adventure. He uh, He's hidden like an Easter egg uh, inside the Oasis and whoever finds it will inherit his fortune. So it's kind of, uh, has, uh, was heavily inspired by Willy Wonka and, and uh, a lot of other things. Awesome. So, so much of the story takes place within the Oasis. I think more than half the book does. Do you see this as something we're actually going to be heading towards? Or do you feel like the importance of online worlds will continue to grow to a point where we just sort of exist in our meat space just to, to keep it alive, but meanwhile, we do our real living out inside a digital world? Um, it definitely seems possible, and it already seems like... Um we already live that way to some degree. Um, not just us, uh, you and I, but, you know, everybody. Um, uh, uh, is linked to this, like everybody has a handheld computer in their pocket that connects them to, a, you know, a global computer network that they can access and, and uh, upload data to at all times. That's already, you know, um, if you would just extrapolate that 35 years, then being uh, kind of surrounded by that technology, it seems kind of inevitable. And what you, like if you just look at the advancement of video games in the last 10 years and how much more real they've gotten, and then I was just trying to imagine, you know, what that's going to be like in 35 years, just trying to imagine the coolest possible uh, kind of a platform for video games and communication and internet and everything kind of mashed together. So I would love, I would love for it to happen. It, it would be a lot of fun, uh, but I don't know if it will. Hey, Ernie, I was going to ask you, so what do you think are the next big innovations in immersion in terms of video games? Because that's really a big theme in the story itself. All right, that's good enough. Uh, I'm not really into video games, so. Uh, but that was pretty interesting. And like I said, I think that wherever we... Uh, are going it's from the mercy of Allah Azawajad, that the new, a new world just doesn't pop into existence it's always imagined by people so it's it's important to see uh, what people are actually thinking out there because that's pretty much where we're going to be heading to something similar and at the same time why should we simply uh, rely upon the imagination of others right and we are human beings as much as they are so where is our imagination of the of the Muslims of our ummah 
what are we imagining for the future of the world? And that's something that's completely lacking and absent, right? Uh, the uh, uh, the Muslims are, are, are sort of just receivers and just uh, 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 they're sort of living other people's imaginations. And I'm telling you that the West can no longer lead. They will lead us down an abyss, all right, Be for the simple reason of they're having meaninglessness, okay, in life. The, the world is completely meaningless. Uh, there's no real depth to it. There's no purpose of life. And it's going to lead us down a, a path that I guarantee you is not going to be good. And what I'm telling you is I think that we have to uh, get on the bus and move our bus. Whether people come along or not, it doesn't matter. Whether If you're going somewhere and you, and you know that there is a storm somewhere, right, and you go in the driving the opposite direction. You're going. You have to move. You can't wait for everyone to come on. We just have to move, and we have to be a people who we know. Uh, we know the truth about this life and the next, and we just have to live it. And it doesn't matter if anyone follows. Follows. They don't follow. They don't follow. It's as if what the the nothing's gonna work unless uh, certain groups of people are on board with it. It doesn't matter who's on board and who doesn't. This is something we have to do, and we have to start doing it in little enclaves, uh, little enclaves of iman, little enclaves of study, little enclaves of belief, networks, informal networks. We don't need a government. We don't need all that stuff. That stuff, not, not that Sharia doesn't uh, call for it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, it, of course, it does. But I'm saying that we have to work with what we have, and what we do have is one another, and we have knowledge. The knowledge is out there. The mashayikh are there. We need to go get the knowledge and we have to support one another in living it. And then wherever, whatever happens after that happens. But we have to live it. You can't worry if, about the whole world accepting it or rejecting it. You just have to do it. And, and we do have something. With all the innovation that's out there, innovation of technology and, and otherwise, the Prophet wasallam still has the only thing that really matters, right? And that is purpose of life, meaning, origin, destination where are we going after life there is nothing there is nobody who has an answer to that except Rasul who has brought us the wahi from Allah because you're not going to know this you're not going to, to, to have any answer to this except through revelation alrighty so let's wrap it up right here Jazakumullah khairan everyone I uh, hope you all have a good week والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته سبحانك الله وبحمدك نشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا الحق وتواصوا الصبر السلام عليكم ورحمة الله. Thank you for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at safinasociety.org.